Uh, Father, we love you and we want um, all that we can get from you and your word this morning. And so please, would you feed us and nourish us, and by the Holy Spirit, God, would you, would you give us more Christ, more Jesus, uh, show us more and more his worth, uh, his surpassing glory, uh, make it so that everything else pales in comparison. Uh, we have a somewhat uncomfortable text before us, and so would you give us the grace to understand it and the grace to apply it uh, for your own glory and our good as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are continuing Jesus' set of teachings on discipleship, uh, predominantly in light of his first and second coming, which transforms all of our current priorities. If he has come in his first advent and he will return a second time, that changes everything about how we live in the now and substantially so, even in massively personal areas like how we earn and spend and invest money. Uh, Jesus is, is thoroughly unafraid uh, to speak about things like this, as shown in our passage today. Uh, we're part of a culture where almost everything is being measured by money. What neighborhood you can afford, uh, size house you have, car you drive, uh, what schools you send the kids to, fancy dishes you eat, what vacations you can snap pictures of and post on whatever you want to post that on. That somehow this is what makes life life. And this is what makes it really worth living and striving for. And it begins really early. Uh, we have our preschool children on graduation day, and they all state what they want to be when they grow up. Some kids say, I want to be president. Others, I want to be a veterinarian, a garbage man, a teacher, a police officer. And, and most of the answers, if not all of them, have nothing to do with future potential earnings. And then you ask a high schooler, uh, even sometimes a junior hire, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. How much does so-and-so make? Oh, you want to make a lot? Yeah, why? So I can buy dot, dot, dot. Yeah, someone in college or a recent college graduate, uh, the pressure has mounted even more, and it seems uh, to continue with each new stage of life. It's as if the more we live in this world and the more we exist in a culture where almost everything is measured by dollars, that we are becoming more and more sanctified in a particular religion where life is measured by what you have and what you can get and own and consume. And if it's a lot, then you really have life. And if it's not enough, however we define what that means, then you really do not have life. I think that that is a predominant religion in the world today more than anything else. And its premise and its thesis really is that life is made up of possessions. That true security is measured by how much equity you have. Success defined by comfort and recreation, financial freedom and power, and this religion's worship and love, and its cause for fidelity is all towards getting more and more. And it's with this mindset of, of worldliness, really, because that's what it is, uh, that there can be birthed in each of our own hearts a desire for more and a longing for that which we do not have yet. Uh, this is called covetousness this inordinate love for the things of the world, a preoccupation with stuff which fuels a discontentment that fills our heart with want that what we need most in this life is just a little bit more. Now, in our last passage, Jesus has issued a very strong warning against hypocrisy, which I don't think anyone thinks highly of hypocrisy. Uh, no one wants to grow up and become the greatest hypocrite of all time, but it's still a danger it's in our passage, there's just a severe warning against the worldly culture which breeds this covetousness, which comes from a heart that does believe to a great degree that you actually can measure life by what you own. 
And this is a mentality which is often actually applauded, uh, even called wisdom, even from those within the church. Jesus is warning us against this very thing in our passage this morning, to be on guard against all covetousness. Look with me in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I want you to notice first how all-consuming this covetousness, this greed can be, to the point where Jesus can be preaching right in front of your face, and you can't even really hear it. The desire for more of the world, the want of more stuff, daydreaming, planning for all of that, can make us so dense to the Word of God where preaching can just bounce right off of us. And the context tells us this. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, has just preached a powerful sermon. He has given a stern warning against hypocrisy. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't even let a little bit of that leaven come into your life, back in verse 1. It's going to spread. Jesus has also just redefined fear for us, that we should fear no man, no woman, no earthly power at all. Why? Because all they can do is kill you, which seems like a lot. But God the Father can kill you and send you to hell, which is infinitely more. So who should you fear most? And yet it is that this Father cares for you. With all his power and might, he does that every single hair on your head has a number and he knows it. You can see how Jesus in this sermon is trying to prepare his followers for this upcoming persecution. I mean, he's about to go to the cross himself. Jesus, within the same sermon, pulls back the curtain, so to speak, so that we can look into the courts of heaven. That when we acknowledge Jesus on earth, he recognizes that in heaven. And if we deny him on earth, he denies us before the angels. That our earthly lives really do have eternal implications beyond what we can see in this world. And that our lives are ultimately measured by what we do with Jesus. That's how important he really is. He concludes his sermon by speaking about the Holy Spirit to respect revere fear, the third person in the Trinity, in some ways more than him, that this spirit will come to your aid when you need him most. And he will give you a wisdom that you cannot come up with on your own. I mean, this is a profound Trinitarian message to give strength, comfort, and hope, boldness. And also at the same time, a charge and a feeling of the weight of the gravity of heaven and hell, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the importance of how we live out our faith on this earth in this very momentary and passing life. And the entire time, there's this one guy in the crowd, and all he's thinking about is money. And we see this in his immediate response to Jesus' powerful sermon. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, this is what he thinks his need really is in light of everything that Jesus has just been saying. Because there's something about covetousness, about worldliness, about that desire for having more than what I have right now that can be so all-consuming where Jesus himself can be preaching with all his might and all of it just bounces right off of you. There's something very hardening about the love of money which deadens us to spiritual realities. Now, there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. It's just a medium. Uh, It's just a currency. I mean, it's papers, coins, statements. But of course, it does represent a certain power. And it's the love of it, 1 Timothy 6.10, which can be the root of all kinds of evil. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And this man with Jesus right before him, uh, he has the wrong love within his heart. Now, if you've ever witnessed a family being torn apart by a dispute over inheritance, uh, you might understand the kind of desperation there is to get things settled quickly, to fix whatever can be fixed and to just move on from it. Relationships are often ruined, even lifelong ones, as a result of this kind of conflict, and so we should at least be a little sympathetic to this man if we have ever witnessed the kind of drama he is currently enduring. But it doesn't change a fact that when hearing about hypocrisy, judgment, fear of man versus fear of God, the courts of heaven, Jesus, the enormity of who the Son of Man is, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't change a fact that all of what Jesus has been saying means literally and utterly nothing to him because to him there is only one thing that is ultimately important, one thing that he would define it as greatest and most pressing need, and that is my inheritance money that I'm not getting but that I want. Covetousness rooted in worldliness, where life is measured by how much you have, it's a very powerful religion. It's a very strong belief system. It's very demanding, and it can harden us and deaden us and kill us spiritually. And so Jesus responds to him, man who made me judge or arbitrator over you. This is not a friendly man. This is a short and curt man. Because this man's utter indifference to spiritual and eternal realities for the sake of some cash puts him at a great distance from Jesus' very own heart. It's as if he says, I don't care about hypocrisy, Jesus. I don't care about the Father who can send to heaven and hell. I don't give a rip right now about being confessed before the angels in heaven or by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The best use of you, Jesus, is for you to use your authority to get me my payday. Now, this man might have a case. Maybe he is being wronged. Maybe his brother is shady. There are shady brothers out there. But that's not even the point. There's something within him that sees in Jesus nothing more than a rabbi who can persuade my sibling to give me my share. And that's not why Jesus has come in his advent. I read this in uh, Dale Ralph Davis' commentary. This is Warren Wearsby. He says, there are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change their hearts. There are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change anything right here. And I wonder if that's any of us. Uh, God, fix this. Give me that. But don't change what I want. Just give me what I want. And Jesus here, he's not going to validate his desires nor his belief system and thus enable him to continue to live like he is currently living. He refuses him because he's more concerned with his spiritual condition, the hardness of his heart, and that is actually the most gracious thing Jesus could do in this very moment. You know, Jesus does not come to us to solve all of our money problems. He comes to us first to be our savior from our sin. He comes first to rescue us from sin's grip over all of our lives. He comes so that we might worship the real thing and not all of these little false things. This man thinks he has a problem somewhere out here. Jesus takes him right down to the problem in here. And perhaps it is that many of us have the same issue where we think the real thing is this. But it's actually much deeper than that. Because the question for each of us is what do we really want? What do we truly worship? What is it that you think is going to make your life really life? Is this something other than God himself? Then he needs to change this and not change that. 
Jesus, he's not being indifferent to justice. He's not negligent of right and wrong, no matter how temporal this world may be. He's really pressing in into people's ultimate priorities. And here, it is not to acquire more and more stuff. And so with this person before him, all consumed with covetousness to the point where the Son of God is preaching in front of his face and he can't even hear it, eternal truths are bouncing right off of him. Jesus takes the time now to dismantle this religion and this worldview so that his followers will not be fooled into being zealous for it. Look with me in verse 16, where we see the premier example of a person who believes with his heart that life truly does consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is the success story. This is the dream for a person who believes that life can be measured by what you have. This is it. This is the pinnacle right here. This man has a lot, uh, he has the brains, he has his growth potential measured, and he seems to have the future all calculated out. The character in this parable, he is a rich man. He owns land which produces a lot of crop, so much so that he doesn't have enough storage to hold it all. The amount of money is way more than he had ever envisioned. Can you imagine? I got this wallet, it's too small for all my cash. I can carry five wallets with me. And the amount of money is way more. This is a bumper crop. This is unusually large. This is an uncharacteristic return, which requires an entirely new set of plans to deal with this kind of wealth. And this man, he doesn't go out and buy a Ferrari right away. He doesn't squander it on loose and wasteful living. He's not making it rain. He's not about instant gratification. He has much more foresight than that. He wants to invest and save and grow this so that this will last quite a long time. And so he's willing to take calculated risks. Tearing down old barns, that is a risk. But he's going to build newer and bigger and better ones. This takes boldness, planning, permits. Maybe not. He is coming up with a sustainable model for his growing wealth in which he's going to reap the benefit of it for many years so that he won't have to stress in the future. He can be financially free, relax, eat, drink, and he can be merry. I mean, for most of us... In this room, we would want what this man has in current terms. And again, there's nothing wrong with acquiring wealth. Wealth is a neutral thing. It's not a sin to have a bumper crop or to have a future mindedness and wisdom about stretching that money and not squandering it. The problem we see is when we do a deeper dive, and this is revealed in, the private man, in this man's private thoughts. We're, we're, being, uh, we're given privy here to a personal conversation he's actually having with himself, that there's actually a, a godlessness to him at the very least, a practical atheism, really, that ignores and does not consider God as significant at all. Again, covetousness makes people dense and dead to spiritual realities. And this comes out when we look at some of the details. Notice that the man doesn't produce anything. Jesus' words are very clear. The land produces everything. The person in this parable is not actually the source of his wealth, whether he recognizes that or not. And that's true for every single one of us as well, and our own wealth of varying sizes. We are not the source of it. We did not create it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul asked the rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer, 
nothing. We receive everything. This man does not have the power to make plants grow. He doesn't cause the sun to shine nor the rains to come. It's all the Lord of the land who makes this productive. It's the same with each of us. Even when we think financially, who gave you the mind to think like you do? When we're given opportunity, who set the opportunity up for us? I mean, who caused us to be born in this country? None of us have anything which has not been given to us. But look at how he speaks of his bumper crop, which ignores that very fact. And we see it in all the first-person language. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I, I, I will tear down my, my, my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. You see, he's taking all the credit and the ownership of everything, even though he didn't produce anything at all. There's no mention of God, uh, 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 providence, no prayer of thanksgiving, no recognition of anything higher than himself. He really believes that all of this is self-produced and therefore this is not a stewardship from God to be entrusted with. It is an ownership that's mine to feel secure in. And we see that too as we look into his perceived purpose of wealth. Money is something you store and save and make bigger. And to what end? Look what he says to his own soul. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. For the person who believes that what they have is mine, self-produced, not given, owned, not a stewardship from God to be entrusted with, the purpose of wealth, therefore, rises no higher than the big M.E., for we find no thought in this conversation with his own soul that this wealth should be used for anything greater than what is seen in the mirror. And therefore, all plans are towards self-comfort, ease, a higher standard of living, consumption. But again, at least he's logically consistent. I mean, brothers and sisters, when you don't think you've received and you think you've truly earned and created wealth on your own, why be grateful? Just getting what you deserve. You're owning what's yours. Um, therefore, why spend it on anything but yourself and, and your family and your interests? Because it's really all you. And this parable uh, starts getting really close to home if we find ourselves becoming envious of this man's life and others like him, or we find that his plans are strangely looking a lot like our plans. And we're hoping to hit these same milestones. He has this confidence in what he owns, uh, that life really is in the abundance of possessions, and therefore it's not surprising that he really believes that the years ahead, they're really in the palm of my hands. True security is measured in this equity. Success defined by comfort and recreation, financial freedom and power, because if our barns are big, we are really bulletproof. Now, let's be real. Who doesn't want this man's position, at least a little bit? You think Jesus is giving this parable only to those weirdos who struggle with covetousness? We are all those weirdos. Because this is and has been the predominant belief system in religion that life can be measured and defined and consist of in abundance of possessions. There is faith in wealth. There is a trust we have in riches which makes us feel like if we have that, we almost don't need anyone or anything else. Which is why worship of God is not even a thought on this man's mind. Only worship for that mammon. 
and worship of that self. And so this parable introduces really the success story, the dream for a person who does believe deeply that life consists in the abundance of what you have. But the twist comes in the conclusion of the parable in verse 20, where the God who has been ignored, he finally does speak. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is an abrupt ending which makes a stern warning, uh, not just for the man in the parable, but every single person who wants to live like him. Um, even if you do have more time than he had to enjoy the things that this guy didn't get to, at the end of your life, your soul is going to be taken from you anyway. God takes this man's soul. It is required of him. He really didn't have security. He didn't have real power. His plans were presumptuous as best. And, and all that wealth, he can't take a penny of it with him. And even if he could, it's not going to help him where he's at. This is a tragic end for the one who does believe uh, in the world's prevalent religion of the day. And there's a sad irony in this parable because it's not like this man neglected his soul in one way. This man speaks to his soul all the time. He counsels his soul. He's, he plans with it. He encourages it, consoles it. And this soul is not prepared for judgment. It's not ready for life after death. And is ill-equipped to stand before God. He, he preached to his own soul the wrong belief system and therefore eternally destroyed his soul because he believed with all his heart that life can be measured and consist of the abundance of possessions. Now, this is a hard sermon. Uh, but it's not hard because Jesus is hard to understand. It's hard because Jesus is easy to understand. It's hard because we all believe, at least a little bit, that life can be measured by what we have. It's by design that the first word out of God's mouth is fool. I don't think that term is chosen by accident. I think the only other time in Luke this far where Jesus utters the word fool is back in chapter 11 and verse 40. He says, you fools, when he addresses the religious hypocrites who are going to be responsible for his own death, who wash the outside of the cup, but not the inside. I think that term is meant to shock us like a cup of cold water to a drowsy face because we are all prone to covetousness, uh, usually without even knowing it, and this inordinate desire for the things of the world which is why we have to take care and be on guard. It's as simple as scrolling through stuff and being filled with want. You know, many of us, we have to take blood tests regularly for our hearts, uh, check for uh, prediabetes. We go to the dermatologist, get skin tests for cancerous marks. It's a regular thing we do to make sure we're not headed towards something destructive. We have to do the very same thing for our souls, brothers and sisters, to check for covetousness. Listen to Alexander McLaren, but covetousness or the greedy clutching at more and more of earthly good has its roots in us all. And unless there is the most assiduous weeding, it will overrun our whole nature. So Jesus puts great emphasis into the command, take heed and keep yourselves, which implies that without much heed and diligent inspection of ourselves, there will be no guarding against a subtle entrance and swift growth of the vice. We may be enslaved by it and never suspect that we are. This is all covetousness, for it has many shapes besides the grossest one of greed for money. 
And I wonder if we believe these words that this roots are in all of us, and without the most assiduous weeding, covetousness will overrun our whole nature. If we find ourselves looking at our wealth as, as personal ownership, this is mine, not a stewardship, this is what God has given to me to use for his glory, and we haven't been on guard. If we think it's ours, not his, if we become richer and maybe we got a raise and think, man, I really did this, and not that God has really provided me with this, uh, we may be in danger of being fools ourselves. When we earn more and more than we used to earn, I, mean, I can remember back in the day, I wish I could just make this much. I wish I could just make 15 bucks an hour, just minimum now. If we make more than we used to, and our immediate goal is to upgrade our lifestyles even beyond what we're making, because I'm banking on future stuff, and I can't wait to invest this and grow this and make this more so that I can have more than I ever had before. Maybe we're not taking guard against every form of covetousness. If spending this amount on, on us is nothing to blink at, but to spend the same amount on the church or missions is, sounds insane, I think we've let our guard slip. Jesus very clearly says of this dreadful lifestyle, uh, he defines its miserly end. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The contrast to selfish investing and spending and hoarding and taking security and possessions as if this world is ultimate, the, the contrast, the reverse, is to be rich towards God. Now, this is a, a pretty interesting language. The Bible, for the most part, speaks of God's riches and kindness to us. God is always rich to us. He's kind to us. He pours out blessings upon us. He's the giver of all good gifts. It doesn't, as a main thrust, speak of our riches to him. But Jesus says right here that we can be rich to him. You know, it's the Christmas season, and, and one of my favorite parts every year is observing our kids trying to figure out what they're going to get for us. They don't have any money. They don't have a car to drive. They don't have a credit card. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have anything. They have kids. I guess they have a little bit of money in their wallets. If they're going to get anything uh, for us, it's going to come from us. We have to be part of the process. You want, I want to get this for mommy. Well, I'm the one who's going to take you to Target then. And oftentimes they will secretly uh, try and make something when we're not looking. But at the end of the day, whatever they do get for us, uh, it's funded by us. But it still does mean the world to us. To see them give us what is already ours in the first place. God owns everything, brothers and sisters. He owns everything. And yet somehow... This great privilege is ours to be rich to him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Lord looking at you full in the face and thinking, this one has really been rich to me, even though he's given us everything? I don't think there is anything else in this world that is worth robbing us of that reality. Do you? God is very rich to us, all of us. Covetousness can so easily blind us from seeing that. Uh, discontentment can rob us. God is, is lavishly uh, bountiful uh, and good to each of us. Greed can, can prevent us from recognizing that. And it's more than any one material thing. Uh, as we celebrate the Advent, the Advent shows to us in the giving of his son, his very birth, He's going to be totally like us in his humanity, 
totally unlike us in his sinlessness and deity. This Savior is born of a virgin, truly man and truly God, and he's laid in a manger that he might live the life we've never lived in pure holiness so that he might die the death we each deserve upon that cross, that he might receive the wrath of God against our unrighteousness that somehow God gives the just as a gift for the unjust. He lives so that he might die and saves those so that we might live. He rises from the grave to secure that so the ones who believe might have life and life eternal. And how does Jesus define this life? Not like the men in the parable. Jesus defines this life for us in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what makes life life. That's what makes life eternal life. And this is where true security lies. Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not with him also give us all things? Romans 8.31. Knowing him gives to us more and more a healthy detachment from the desire of the world, and therefore greed and covetousness. And so what does it mean to be rich towards God? Jesus, again, he doesn't explicitly define it. It just ends right there until the next passage, which is next Sunday. Except that it's the opposite of more and more worldly things. He's going to fill that out a little bit later. But listen to John Piper. He says, here Jesus calls us to replace thing-seeking with kingdom-seeking. Thing-seeking. Replace that with kingdom-seeking. And being consistent with the parable, he issues this warning. In other words, if a person finds his income rising and rising, and instead of funneling that increase into kingdom ministry, he buys more and bigger things to increase his ease and security like this rich man, then God will call that person a fool and take away his soul. But if, brothers and sisters, we are more hungry for his kingdom and we spend towards that end, no one, when all is said and done, can ever call us fools. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying don't go on vacation, don't purchase a house, don't get a new car, don't have a hobby and whatnot, don't save for retirement. And I also don't think Jesus is saying, well, you don't have to work hard because God provides. You don't have to be fiscally wise, don't read stuff. Uh, you can just be lazy. I do think, however, that when we're very protective of our own greed and spending, and defensive over our lifestyle choices, I, I do think we often try and find a straw man to fight against that doesn't really exist. Was Jesus asking me to be financially stupid then? No. Where, did, where does he say that? Well, you think I shouldn't work and, and just study and trust God? Again, no, that's, that's not what he's saying. But sometimes we do things like this as a defense because if we can find some weak objection or opponent to dismantle, then we can continue to coddle our belief and perhaps our life being further defined by what we possess, more so than it is about knowing God and making him known. And if we put up that kind of defense, I think we're going to do harm to our own souls. Uh, others of us, we just want to cut it and dry. Give me a dollar amount. Give me a percentage. What percent do I give to him so that I can enjoy my selfishness with peace? Notice that Jesus is not commanding against, uh, he's not drawing a line in the sand. He's commanding against a desire. He's not trying to give you a fixed percentage. The question always to this man, to us, is what do we really want in this life? 
Do we think that this world and this kingdom has more to offer than the next one? And therefore, how invested are we going to be in this one versus the next one? Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things which are above, not on things which are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What do we have to do, brothers and sisters, to set our minds on things above? It's an action. It's just not a casual feeling. You have to set it. You have to set your things on uh, what's above. This is not a workspace righteousness uh, that if you give this much, you go to heaven. If you don't, then you go to hell. It's not a workspace righteousness. It's really uh, a fundamental test of if we really believe what we so believe. Jesus is not condemning wealth. If you're rich, he's not condemning wealth. It's how we use that wealth. It's to what ends. And if our spending really does proclaim that knowing God is life, not owning stuff, or if our lives proclaim instead that owning stuff is really where it's at, then knowing God is give it the leftovers. And I think more and more we have to look and understand and know if we are living our lives as if this is what it is or if we're living our lives because Jesus Christ is coming back. If we hope in this world or we believe in the next one, if we just think about Christ's first advent and utterly ignore his second one. Now, the application of this text is going to look a lot different for each person. You know, some of you here uh, may own multiple properties and homes and have several more zeros behind the first number in each of your accounts. You know, some, some people, God just gives them this ability, this Midas touch. It's like every decision, maybe like eight out of ten decisions, just returns tenfold. Everything's a bumper crop. Sometimes God does that. I think if that's you, you have to think pretty seriously about if your life preaches stuff more than it preaches Jesus. Don't squander a God-given opportunity to be tremendously rich towards him in his kingdom. Listen to 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That's the best foundation. So that they may take hold of that which is really life. You know, by God's grace, there are so many examples in our church family of people who are like this. And you, and you know who you are. You, you just give substantially and no one knows it. Um, you're taking hold of that, which is really life. Uh, for those of us who uh, have less than that, I want you to notice that this sermon isn't given at a Fortune 500 event. It's actually given to people who don't have all that much. There's a bunch of broke fishermen who left their fishing boats. There's people who left their careers to follow Jesus. This sermon's for them, to let them know, you know what? When you start hitting some bumps, stuff isn't the answer to your life. And, and you can be filled with just as much covetousness even though you never get it. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
Now, one thing that can happen after texts like these is that we feel really guilty. Maybe I shouldn't have bought that TV on Black Friday. I shouldn't have bought that surfboard. I shouldn't have got the XLE Premium. I should have just got the LE Toyota. And then after a few hours of guilt or maybe a week, we go right back to the same old patterns. I don't think God wants us to walk away with some kind of penance of guilt. This is why the church is so important, family and, and, and church family and small groups are so important, because I think we can actually prayerfully enact real concrete change in our heart's patterns when it comes to desires and goals and milestones and whatnot. I mean, you can go home today if you, if you want. You can sit down with your spouse and pull out the budget and be like, let's plan to be more generous. Let's plan to be rich towards God, not just in sentiment, but let's figure out how to do this. Perhaps we resolve, I'm going to drive this car for 10 years or 12 years or 15 years instead of five. And that means 12 years without a car payment that I'm used to paying, I can actually fuel a lot more to missions and church plans and to my home church family. Maybe we stay in a condo and not buy a house. Maybe we put off buying a house for a little bit. Not to just be cheap and save more, but so I can use this to be rich to God. I think this is a good and necessary conversation we each need to have with ourselves, with our spouses, with our small groups. If you have little kids, start having it early. Otherwise, a different pattern is going to emerge in their lives. And as we come to the Lord's table, as Bob's going to come up here and explain it, we're, we're reminded always of just how rich God has been to each of us in Christ's advent, and at the same time, just how sure Christ's second advent really, really is. He said, I will drink this anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's coming back. We're going to have a feast with him. It's set. We should set our minds on that moment more than any passing moment here. When we eat and drink and we partake of his body, we're not just saying, this is what you did for me. You're coming back for me, and I believe it. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you, God, that uh, Jesus, he, he didn't just give us what we want. He gives us what we need. He don't just settle estates. Uh, you change our hearts. You tell us uh, to be careful of the things that are most detrimental to our souls. And I pray by the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would make this um, a burden light, this yoke easy. Uh, it's so easy to be distracted in this world, Lord. Show us by the Holy Spirit the shining glory of Jesus Christ to make everything else look strangely dim. Father, would you just more and more show us the privilege we have just to be your very own uh, give us eyes to see uh, what's in heaven. Uh, give us a mind to think uh, with great perspective. Uh, none of us in this room are that old compared to you. Give us perspective that comes from faith and trust in your word. And I pray that you would do mighty things in these short little lives that we have and that we will not fall for fool's gold. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.